1: Where have you gone, Popeye the Sailor Man? A nation turns its lonely eyes to you. I had the uh, misfortune of being exposed to something called Cocomelon. It's C-O-C-O-M-E-L-O-N, I think that's how you pronounce it, on Netflix today. It's a show for little kids, an animated musical uh, that teaches them letters and numbers. I guess the 21st century version of Sesame Street, something like that. But what I saw was an animation that included a five-year-old boy's two gay dads. And they are singing to this kid and telling him to bring out his best moves for his two biggest fans. So the kid disappears and then comes back, and he has changed into a dress. And he comes out dancing. And they say, when you have to choose, think about all the things you like to do. And it shows him trying to decide whether to put on a fireman's helmet or a princess crown, and then the two effeminate dads sing, Just Be You. In other words, a national TV show is telling kids that they get to decide whether they get to be a boy or a girl. These are like five-year-old kids, by the way. And there are people who are still wondering why there's been a huge increase in kids who decide they need to change their sex. And this is why we need Popeye again. Sorry, but if I had a five-year-old son today and his choice was watching two effeminate dads uh, saying he should give some thought to becoming a girl or watching Popeye beat the crap out of Bluto, he's watching Popeye. Or maybe I haven't watched him Three Stooges. You know, the kinds of shows that boys watched when men were men and boys were boys. In case you missed it, as I said... Uh, this show is on Netflix. Just in case you've been considering canceling, this might be the thing to put you over the top. When we come back, a legal expert will talk about the Colorado Supreme Court taking uh, Donald Trump off the Republican primary ballot, what it means, what's coming up next. And in our second half hour, Adam Andrzejewski of OpenTheBooks.com will tell you how some of the money you earned at work today is going to end up, and Harvard and other Ivy League schools, I should say, and what you can expect them to do with it. Stick around. Well, the Colorado Supreme Court says Donald Trump can't run for president. At least he can't run for the primary in that state. At least it wasn't unanimous, uh, even though they're all Democrats. So uh, what does it mean? That's the Supreme Court I'm talking about, all Democrats. And how long will it stand before the U.S. Supreme Court throws it out. Zach Smith is a legal fellow and manager of the Supreme Court and Appellate Advocacy Program at the Heritage Foundation. He knows a little bit about this stuff. Uh, Zach, thanks for coming on. Of course, great to talk with you this afternoon, John. Okay, so uh, yeah, thank you. Could this be called a uh, possibly a, a, a jump the shark moment for the anti-Trump <laughs> movement? I mean, how, how seriously should this be taken? This just seems like uh, you, this is something you could never have imagined.
2: Well, look, you know, over the past year, I feel like I've been saying a lot, we're in unprecedented territory. And I think that phrase certainly rings true today. We are in unprecedented territory. Never before have we had a leading contender for the presidency of the United States being criminally prosecuted, sued in multiple civil suits across several different jurisdictions. And certainly never before have we had a state Supreme Court decide that one of the leading presidential candidates could not appear on the ballot. And so I suspect the U.S. Supreme Court is going to be asked to review this in short order. I think there's a good chance they will review it, Uh, but we will have to wait and see what happens. But whether it's a jump the shark moment or, or what have you, it is certainly an unprecedented moment in American
1: history. Should sane people uh, take some consolation in the fact that the vote was four to three in Colorado? I mean,
2: well, I think it is noteworthy uh, that this was not a unanimous decision. The Colorado Supreme Court is not known to be a conservative Supreme Court by any stretch of the imagination. Most of the dissenting judges, there are three of them, dissented on procedural grounds, basically saying that this was inappropriate uh to be resolved in the particular election code uh, that was at issue in this case. Uh, but look, we'll have to wait and see what the U.S. Supreme Court decides to do, whether it decides to review it and so on what grounds. It would decide to either uphold or invalidate uh, this decision. But as my colleague Hans Vanskowski has pointed out, there are many, many issues uh, left unresolved by this Colorado Supreme Court decision. Even the issues that it did purport to resolve are very uh, weighty, very heavily contested constitutional issues about the meaning of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Which was passed in the wake of the Civil War to essentially disqualify ex-Confederates from holding office until Congress said they were again eligible to do so. Uh, but you know, this is again not the end of this debate, and I suspect will only ramp up uh, even further in the wake of this decision.
1: And as you said, this is not a conservative court out there. This is the same group uh, that keeps trying to force a baker out there in Colorado to design to uh, design right. cakes that he doesn't want to design. So should anybody be really surprised by this decision once it was put in front of them?
2: Well, it's not just cakes that he doesn't want to design – uh, John, you're talking about Jack Phillips. He yeah, has a deeply yeah. held religious objection. He'll serve anyone, but he won't bake cakes uh, essentially celebrating same-sex weddings, which go mm-hmm. against his religious beliefs. He won't bake cakes uh, celebrating gender transitions, which uh, you know he believes uh, in biological differences between men and women, uh, and believes that there are certain defined, immutable characteristics inherent in each. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Colorado, that state has pursued him uh, relentlessly. Now, I will say, what's troubling, uh, even more troubling, is that shortly after the Colorado Supreme Court released its decision just earlier today, the California lieutenant governor issued a letter to the California Secretary of State asking California Secretary of State to explore ways to potentially keep Donald Trump off of the ballot in California. Now, what was funny and somewhat ironic is in that letter, uh, the lieutenant governor of California actually made a Pretty egregious factual mistake. She said you had to be 40 years old uh, and quote not an insurrectionist to be president. Anyone who's read the Constitution will tell you that the minimum age to be president is 35 years old.
1: <laughs> she actually um, said
2: it, 40. She did. It's in the yeah, letter. Yeah. I retweeted it. You can oh, see it yeah. at my Twitter account at uh, TZ Smith. I retweeted the letter with the mistake in it. Uh, but look, you know this is uh, this is certainly going to be full-throated lawfare in the lead up to the 2024 election. We saw it in 2020. We're seeing it again in 2024. And I suspect, unfortunately, we're going to have to endure uh, many of these types of lawsuits uh, in the lead up to, to this next election.
1: How long do you think it will be uh, before the U.S. Supreme Court takes it up? I don't know. You know, the Colorado Supreme Court released this decision,
2: at, uh, you know certainly an inconvenient time when everyone's getting ready to go away for the holidays, uh, spend time with their families, rightfully so. Uh, the Colorado Supreme Court did stay its decision, essentially put it on hold until January 4th in order to give the U.S. Supreme Court time to review this. I suspect Donald Trump's lawyers are already working on a... <clears throat> request to the u.s supreme court to take this up and review that uh so we'll just have to wait and see uh but i'm sure everyone recognizes this is an incredibly urgent matter uh, that needs to be resolved sooner rather than later
1: i see that uh, more than one uh legal expert that i came across today predicting a nine to nothing shutout in the supreme court it's a, it's a and is that is that um wishful thinking Well, it's certainly possible. Uh,
2: I will say after the past few years, I think my crystal ball is broken or at least a little muddy in terms of uh, making those types of predictions. Uh, But look, there's a number of different ways the U.S. Supreme Court could resolve this case uh, in favor of Donald Trump. Uh, There, are, as I mentioned, there are a number of unresolved legal issues such as whether Donald Trump qualifies as an officer of the United States, or whether the presidency qualifies as an officer of the United States as required for Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. There's also an open question of whether Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is self-executing uh, or whether Congress has to, in fact, pass legislation. Uh, there's a question about whether Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is still valid and effective today after Congress passed two different amnesty acts, one in 1872, one in the late 1890s, uh, essentially reinstating the civil rights of uh, Civil War veterans, even high-ranking officials in many instances. And then, of course, there is also the question of, look, Donald Trump hasn't been criminally convicted in any court of engaging in insurrection. And in fact, so far, uh, the only uh, judicial or quasi-judicial body to consider the question, the Senate, uh, during Donald Trump's impeachment trial, actually acquitted him. Uh, of that conduct and so there are a number of questions uh, including some procedural ones as well that remain outstanding and so again i think we'll just have to wait and see what the u.s supreme court does with this decision
1: we're talking to zach smith he's a legal fellow and the manager of supreme court and appellate advocacy advocacy program at the heritage foundation so the the 14th amendment also says that a person i believe it says uh, a person can't run for office if he has aided or given comfort to the enemy how much of a stretch would it be to say that joe biden maybe with the help of his son did that with china and somebody could come after him for that and get him off well, of look now. i
2: think that i think the point you're getting at is certainly uh, one one of the reasons that we haven't seen these types of uh political legal slash political ploys in the past in that I think many on the left have recognized that if they move forward too aggressively down this pathway, uh, that what's good for the goose will eventually be good for the gander. And you will see uh, conservative states trying to potentially kick uh, Democratic nominees off the ballot. You know, it's one of the reasons, uh, at least from a pragmatic standpoint, why you often haven't seen a former presidents prosecuted in the past, the recognition that the tit for tat, the back and forth is too great. Uh, and so certainly one of the concerns some of the left raised when Donald Trump, uh, when these prosecutions against Donald Trump were initiated, a concern that a Republican or red state prosecutor somewhere uh, could potentially go after Joe Biden or Hunter Biden or some member of his family for one of their many, many alleged misdeeds. And so, you know, that what's good for the goose, good for the gander, tip for tap, back and forth, I think is certainly a concern uh, that has existed in these types of cases uh, for, you know, like time immemorial.
1: Now, I also noticed that I, obviously I'm not an attorney or, a, uh, or an uh, You're expert. You're better for on, it. <laughs> uh, yeah. um, it also says in the 14th Amendment, quote, but Congress may by a vote of two-thirds of each house Remove such disability. The disability meaning the ability to run for office. Right. If found to have been, uh, this is I this is what I guess it says. Uh, it's it's saying that Congress can remove the disability of Donald Trump to run with a two-thirds vote of each house. Now, could the Republicans well, in the House make a point by putting this to a vote at some point, and if, if for nothing else, to get people on the record?
2: Uh, They certainly could, but again, it's also important to place Section 3 of the 14th Amendment in its historical context. This was passed in the wake of the Civil War. Basically, there was a concern that if ex-Confederates suddenly flooded back into uh, Union offices, they could essentially enact their own programs, you know, maybe forgive Confederate war debts, uh, not pay Union war debts, which would be, you know, of course, very problematic since the Union uh, won the war. And so Congress did pass Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, the entire 14th Amendment, of course, it was ratified by the states and Congress did pass legislation, essentially barring many ex-Confederates from holding office, uh, particularly high ranking ones. But as I mentioned just a minute ago, subsequently in 1872 and then in the 1890s, Congress removed that disability. And so, again, there's an open question of whether Section 3 of the 14th Amendment can be self-executing or whether Congress has to pass some type of legislation to enact it. It certainly has to do that with other provisions of the 14th Amendment, which are not self-executing. Uh, and so, uh, again, it's just one of the many, many open questions uh, that will have to be resolved uh, with this entire debacle.
1: I know there's no way uh, for you to know this, but just uh, your gut feeling— Do you think that the Colorado Supreme Court, the people, the four people who voted uh, yes, um, do they do you think that they were 100 percent or at least close to 100 percent sure that this was going to be overturned, that it had no chance of sticking?
2: Well, I think they are certain the U.S. Supreme Court will be asked to review it. And I think there's probably a very good chance that the U.S. Supreme Court will, in fact, Uh, review it Uh, but look at the end of the day you know judges are supposed to decide legal issues they're not Mm -hmm. supposed to engage in politicking or sending political messages Uh, but i have to suspect the four judges who are in the majority in this case are certainly enjoying the you know political uh you know fallout getting from those on the left uh, right now
1: yeah well um now nobody uh including trump and you mentioned this, has actually been charged with insurrection on January 6th. And I mean nobody, not Donald Trump, not anybody, has been, uh, as far as I know, uh, specifically charged with insurrection. So um, at some point, does somebody have to be charged with that to make it qualify as an insurrection and therefore uh, make Trump guilty of inciting it?
2: Well, I think it goes back to the, what we were talking about a little bit earlier, John. You know, it's certainly an odd situation to have the Colorado Supreme Court in this context, uh, saying that Donald Trump has was guilty of, you know, essentially participating in an insurrection when he's never been criminally convicted of that, and the only body to consider those types of charges, the Senate, during his impeachment trial, acquitted him mm-hmm. uh, of those charges. Uh, so it certainly is an odd situation. The, the only other thing I would say is pay attention to a, uh, a case the Supreme Court recently uh, granted, Fisher versus United States, it doesn't directly involve Donald Trump, but it involves uh, some individuals who were present on January sixth. Uh, they're essentially challenging their conviction, saying the government has read a particular statute too broadly that it can't encompass their conduct. Uh, to, you know, to be criminally prosecuted for what they did on January sixth, and that case could indirectly impact some of these other cases against Donald Trump and what he's been accused of doing. And so I think it's a, it's kind of been under the radar lately, but it's a very important case. Uh, Certainly will be very consequential in terms of the cases against Donald Trump and one worth watching uh, when the Supreme court hears that case in 2024.
1: Talking to uh, Zach Smith, legal fellow and manager of the Supreme court and appellate advocacy program at the heritage foundation. Um, So if, if this would go to the Supreme Court, which you think it's going to... I think everybody thinks it's going to go, but you say you think it's going to end up there. Um, and um, and they take it up. Is it possible that this could lead to the Supreme Court just blowing out the contention that the mob at the Capitol was even involved in an insurrection, which would change a lot of things that are being said and done right now?
2: Potentially. Uh, you know, I think generally the court tries to decide... Uh, the case on the narrowest ground possible. Generally, they have a uh, a, a practice of avoiding constitutional questions if they can decide uh, the case on some other ground. As I mentioned, there are some procedural questions involved in this particular case as well. Uh, Now, I think the country would be better served if the court would go ahead and reach the merits and decide really the underlying uh, issue because as we saw in California, I suspect other states are going to continue down this path and try to do something similar to what Colorado did, unfortunately. Uh, But there are a number of off-ramps the Supreme Court could take, and I suspect they will, as is their usual practice, will try to decide it on the narrowest grounds possible.
1: Uh, We have about a minute left. Is this a case that, um, again, you're you're a a student of the court and you watch this stuff, Um, does this seem to you to be the kind of a case that would uh, be more likely to not be partisan based on political feelings. In other words, is this so big that they'll all look at it and say, look, this we can't have this. This is just every once in a while that happens. It does. It actually happens more
2: often than you would think. Actually, many of the court's decisions are nine zero eight one seven two, not the five Mm -hmm. four splits that, you know, the media would like us to think. But certainly this is a consequential uh, case. I suspect the justices will try to find consensus uh, where they can. uh, But it will certainly be a big one to watch uh, to see if the court takes it and if so, uh, what they decide to do with it.
1: Hey, Zach, I appreciate you coming on, and maybe we'll have you on again when uh, this thing finally comes down and ends up in the court. We'll see, get your take on that, and I appreciate you coming on, and Merry Christmas.
2: Merry Christmas. Thanks for having me on, and I look forward to continuing the conversation.
1: Okay, thank you very much. That's Zach Smith of the um, Heritage Foundation. I'll be right back. Well, with what's been going on on Ivy League campuses lately, well, actually colleges everywhere, but you have to wonder how many, uh, how any parent would, um, would make the decision to spend $60,000 a year or something like that to send their kid to one of these schools. But how about the government spending, uh, sending your money to them? Adam Angievsky is the founder and CEO of com. He joins us now. Good to have you back, Adam. How are you?
0: Well, Merry Christmas, John. Thanks Same for having you. me
1: back. Same to you. So, Uh, everybody who worked today will have some of their hard-earned money confiscated to send to Harvard and other Ivy League schools. Why and what for?
0: Well, I think regular people across the country are asking why our taxpayer money is going to any
1: university
0: that's that's incubated discrimination, bigotry, and anti-Semitism, let alone, John, advocacy of terrorism against our closest ally in the Middle East. Make no mistake, public funding and discrimination of any type, this cannot be reconciled. So here's what we found. At OpenTheBooks.com, our auditors found that the eight schools of the Ivy League, plus Stanford and Northwestern, had received taxpayer-paid benefits, special tax treatment and federal contracts and grants over the course of the last five years, amounting to $45 billion. And John, during this period... These 10 schools, they had all the money in the world. Their endowments alone increased by $65
1: billion. <laughs> Wait, let's do those numbers again. They were given how much? So taxpayer uh, benefits, mm-hmm. so contracts and grants,
0: $33 billion direct subsidy of of these 10 schools, you know, coming right out of mm. our taxpayer dollars. Another $12 billion in tax benefits where they didn't have to pay the capital gains tax that we all pay they mm-hmm. pay a very small one at 1.4% so 12 billion dollars there and then while this is going on they raised private sector funds for their endowment of of you know their endowments increased with with their with the giving from you know the private sector plus mm-hmm. the gains of 65 billion dollars <laughs> they so, didn't need our money
1: no i don't think so and here's the thing I don't know about you, and I don't know about other people listening, but if they came to me uh, here at the station every Friday and they said, listen, before you leave today, we need you to drop a quarter in this jar um, at the door, because it's and it's going to go to the Ivy League schools, and you have to do it. It's coming out of your paycheck. But <laughs> I, I would not put the 25 cents in there. Cause I, no. I, I say that because... Yeah, There's no way to figure out like, like this is taxpayer money. So over the year, am I paying seven cents out of what I earn to give them their billions? I don't know what it is, but I don't care if it's seven cents. If it's one cent, I don't want it forcibly taken from me and given to Harvard. Why is that something that should be strange to anybody that I would feel that way? You know,
0: so we're talking about numbers over the course of the last five years from 2018 through 2022. But, John, we, we did a study, came out in the year 2017, of a six-year period of just the Ivy League. And we took the amount of taxpayer money they'd received up against how much taxpayer money state governments had received. And if the Ivy League were a state government, it would outrank 16 states in the <laughs> receipt of taxpayer
1: money. That's that's unbelievable.
0: Isn't that crazy? They are more government contractor today than they are educator. Stanford, uh, in the fiscal year 2022, they received $1.6 billion from taxpayers on contracts and grants. They only charge six hundred million dollars in undergraduate student tuition, so it's two to one. It's better than two to one. It's the same picture at Columbia in the Ivy League. The feds sent them one point three billion, while student tuition amounted to less than eight hundred million. So these wealthy elite universities—they're getting a lot more from taxpayers than what they're collecting from students.
1: And and it's not like they're lowering tuition costs for the people who are paying to go there. <laughs>
0: No. As a matter of fact, they're setting the high bar. And then everybody in the country, all 5,000 institutions of higher learning, is able to increase their rates coming in behind them. So yeah, they're doing a disservice to everybody. They've got all the money in the world. They're significantly funded by taxpayers. And they're setting the high watermark on tuition so everybody else can charge more to go to college.
1: And you wonder how many people, you know, watching what's been going on on college campuses, the the fiasco with the three presidents and everything that's been in the news uh, the last couple of weeks, you wonder how many people who are sitting at home watching that, have ever if it occurs to them that this insanity that they're watching, the stuff that's being taught on these places and the things that are being done there and the things that are being done to people who disagree with them, I wonder how many people actually even think about the fact that they're being forced because that's what taxes are they are being forced to pay for this yeah who knew
0: the ivy league was taxing you yeah i mean people want clawback and look you know congress they're getting the message from the american people so you had you had kevin riley you had elise stefanik you know they all both of those got their degrees in undergraduate school from harvard Mm -hmm. and uh Uh, Representative uh, Kevin Riley out of California, he got his law degree from Yale. He gave a five-minute floor speech the other night, citing our data at OpenTheBooks.com, saying Congress certainly has a role to play. Elise Stefanik has been absolutely terrific with those presidents from those three elite universities in the hot seat in that congressional hearing. You know, her questions arguably led to the firing of the University of Pennsylvania president. Um, You know, these Ivy League graduates... In Congress, on the Republican side, they get it. Congress has a role to play on oversight. Look, the last time we looked at these federal grants, we found that Cornell got a million bucks, and I've talked about it on your show over the years, John, uh, on a study where it hurts the most to be stung by a bee.
1: And I paid for it, and you paid for it, and everybody (laughs) listening here paid for it.
0: So I I do think Congress is going to go line by line through the checkbook of these wealthy and elite schools, and they should. They should do their job. Because here's what we found, you know, just taking a cursory look through the federal checkbook, which we're holding at OpenTheBooks.com. Everyone can search it. Uh, we found $4 million in 2022, again, went to Cornell, to increase the number of minoritized faculty in the sciences through a partnership with the National Institutes of Health, NIH, who used to employ Fauci. Yeah. Now, look, I can save them a million, $4 million. Here's how you hire in the sciences. You hire on merit and you stop discriminating, period, end of story. If you're not discriminating, if you're hiring on merit, you've got nothing to worry about. You're going to have the proper number of minoritized faculty on your staff.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, So how is Harvard considered a public charity? (laughs) Well, they're
0: organized under the IRS code section 501c3. It's actually what our organization at OpenTheBooks.com dot com is organized under, uh, and it's it's a public charity. You have one mission, and that's to educate. And I think these these institutions are off mission. Like I said, they're more federal contractor to th- today than they are educator.
1: Yeah, and I have a question for you. You mentioned that you know your the, the stuff that your work that you've done at OpenTheBooks.com dot com has been uh, cited in congressional hearings, and you you put it up on your website all the time examples of how the government is using the information that you have dredged up. Um, my, it's a simple question. I'm glad you're doing the work, Adam, and I think you're doing great work, obviously. Love having you on the show. But why aren't they finding this out? Why does it take <laughs> you to do this? I know. Well, look, we uh, we have subject matter expertise on this stuff, and we're
0: going to continue to dig and claw and dig and claw you know, and bring a white-hot spotlight to both parties in Congress. We're going to bring the heat, John,
1: so they see the light. This is their job. They should do their job. And what's the, like, what kind of reaction will you get? You mentioned that this stuff was cited recently. But what is the usual reaction you get when this the stuff that you um, expose is made public and gets a, a pretty good um uh, a good bit of publicity what's what kind of reaction do you see is it is it short-lived whatever it is
0: well no i mean there's there's oftentimes a long tail to it and i'm going to give you an example so repeatedly over the years on your show we've talked at length about the militarization of the federal agencies and the irs yep. and this year it led to two congressional victories in the house so on the IRS appropriations bill, that's their funding bill, they now have to do a complete audit, a public audit of their gun locker. They've got to show us exactly how many bullets they have in stockpile, what weapons they've purchased, including the number of machine guns, long barrel rifles and shotguns, buckshot and all the rest of it for their over 2300 IRS special agents that have arrest and firearm authority and <laughs> purchase guns ammunition and military style equipment. So that's number one. Number two, we actually in the House this year got the EPA, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. They've got 200 special agents on staff with arrest and firearm authority and they're armed to the teeth and got them defunded and stripped of arrest and firearm authority. Now, the House has voted for this on the EPA appropriations bill. Now it goes to the Senate. The Senate, you know, as everyone knows, they're They're operating on a continuing resolution, so they haven't picked up this bill yet. Mm -hmm. But when it does, they're going to have to deal with the defunding of the EPA special agent.
1: We're talking to uh, Adam Angievsky, He's the founder and CEO of OpenTheBooks.com. So getting back to the Ivy League there, Adam, uh, we have a few minutes left here. Uh, Since this is Pennsylvania, how has the University of Pennsylvania made out on this deal with the tax money?
0: Yeah, so the uh, University of Pennsylvania Endowment, it's $21 billion. Over the course of the last five years, they've received federal funding of $3.7 billion. And obviously, they've come under a lot of fire by donors and alumni for not condemning the attacks on the Israeli citizens, overlooking the concerns of the university's Jewish community. You know, they uh, at one point earlier this year, UPenn incorporated a political litmus test into the hiring decisions. They were asking uh, their faculty job applicants to submit a diversity statement complete with plans to, quote unquote, advance diversity, equity and inclusion. And so, um, you know, they've uh, they've they've been in the hot seat and obviously now there's turnover uh, in the president's position. Um, They haven't fared well in twenty twenty
1: three. And um, what can be done about all this, Adam? Well, I
0: see. I, I think we're all witnessing a donor revolt. And that's why that, that president there at UPenn is gone, is because when people saw transparently in a congressional hearing the statements by these people, it just, you know, no one's going to stand for discrimination, bigotry, anti Semitism in that position. And so, I, you know, it proves. That there is a repository of values and morality amongst re- regular people in this country that the elites don't possess the elites in this country would sell us out if given the chance.
1: Well, you point out on your uh, in a piece that you wrote at uh, table tabletmag.com that uh, we're, as long as we're talking about the University of Pennsylvania here. They you they sponsored the Palestine Rights W R I T E S festival, which organizers claim is quote dedicated to celebrating and promoting cultural productions of Palestinian writers and artists. However, the event showcased multiple writers deemed anti-Semitic by the Anti Defamation League, and that include Roger Waters and a poet named Rafiat Alarir. After the October 7 massacre, this guy uh wrote, reported that at least uh, on the reports that one baby's remains were found in an oven. This guy tweeted with or without baking powder. That's what this guy tweeted and my tax dollars went to pay for him to run around on campus there or what was that all about?
0: I mean, this is just disgusting. It shows the moral rot. At what is supposed to be one of our elite universities in this country, and it's just rotten from the inside out. I mean, UPenn also has; a, it looks like they have a uh, problem with uh, the Chinese Communist Party. They have refused all attempts to clarify the role of the Chinese Communist Party in the activities of the Penn Biden Center.
1: Oh yeah, I forgot about that. What's that all about?
0: Well, I'm not a subject matter expert on it, but. Yeah, I know. Um, but uh look, um at openthebooks dot com, you know, we have been at the forefront of exposing the cCP, whether mm-hmm. it's the uh, domestic uh military contractors that they own within the United States that soaked up nearly four hundred million dollars worth of round one paycheck protection program funds. Taking that away from mom and pop businesses on Main Street, literally PPP funds at the height of the pandemic flowed to the CCP or the brain drain at America's most prestigious uh, research facilities like Los Alamos, where there now exists a Los Alamos club in China where – uh, our top science, you know top Chinese-born scientists that were given federal grants, given positions at these labs, now work for the Chinese Communist Party on some of the most sophisticated technologies that will be used against us. So we've been at the forefront of this. The fact that U Penn can't draw moral distinction between the CCP <laughs> um, and and the United States of America—I mean, that's that's also shameful.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty sure they paid Joe Biden a million bucks or something to show up twice, or was, and and then he runs around saying that he's a. Professor at Penn, University of Pennsylvania. What a, what a joke. So I only have about 30 seconds left. What are you working on after this? What's coming up next at uh, OpenTheBooks.com?
0: Well, everyone uh, should know that Dr. Anthony Fauci is going to be in the hot seat in the first couple of weeks of January. He's going to He is testifying in front of Congress, and we are subject matter experts on the Fauci family finances and the $5 million that he made during the pandemic, on his increase in net worth, so we are we are ready for the Fauci testimony in Congress, and we'll have breaking news.
1: Will you have uh, information that you've provided be used in those hearings?
0: Well, I hope so. Yeah. I mean, everyone's getting ready for those hearings. They're you know they you know everyone's super interested to yeah. see what Dr. Anthony Fauci is going to say on a variety of different issues. Um, you know. You know, this is a guy that uh, received one million dollars just as soon as Trump left office from a foreign nonprofit expressly for speaking, quote unquote, truth to power during the Trump years and for, quote unquote, defending science. Uh, you know, I think he has to justify how he gets a million dollars as a as a federal bureaucrat. That was two years worth of pay.
1: Well, I'm, I'm sure you'll you'll put the heat on and I appreciate it. We'll have you on again to talk about it. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, John. Okay, that's Adam Angievsky. You can find this stuff, by the way, you should check it out at openthebooks.com. I'll be right back. Every once in a while, we like to finish with a little bit of news or something from the sports world. I think I mentioned yesterday, Rashard Mendenhall, former Steelers back. He said that he's tired of white men who don't know anything about football, criticizing him, and he suggested having a Pro Bowl with white players against black players, which, I don't know, seems kind of racist, but by the way, I'd actually like to watch that. That might be entertaining. But um, but apparently, uh, well, not apparently, obviously, this comment from Richard, it's amazing what a little thing on Twitter, formerly Twitter, now X can do for you or against you, he put this tweet up yesterday, and I saw them talking about it today on uh, the uh, on Fox News on Outnumbered, I believe, is where they were talking about it. And he's his tweet is getting lots of attention, and he's an idiot for, for just what he said was stupid and moronic um, because he said that he's better than your goat, meaning he's better than the, the greatest white running back. And I pinpoint, I think I pointed out yesterday that uh, Christian McCafferty is, um, is uh, leading the league in rushing, and he's a first-ballot Hall of Famer, and he's a lot better than um, Mendenhall ever dreamed of being. But what's what's really strange about all this is that um, it, it exists in the first place, that there's – I don't know what the numbers are in the NFL. Uh, the, I think it's might be 70% of the players are black, and they're obviously – Nobody is discriminating against anybody there there These guys have their jobs based on you know merit and if anything, Rashard Mendenhall should be glad that he was part of a profession where people are that uh, they're judged based on their abilities and they they exist as NFL players simply because they proved not that they are they are qualified to be one, and it has nothing to do with what color you are. So I, I, we haven't heard the the end of the Richard Mendenhall stupidity, uh, and I'm kind of glad. I hope he's being tortured quite a bit by this because he deserves to be. And um, maybe tomorrow I'm going to try to get somebody on here to talk about that, but uh, I'll work on that tomorrow. We'll see what happens, and I'll talk to you then.